essential materials that I need. I do remember the last time you were home saying the fastest internet connection you ever had was in Timbuktu. And that's like a punchline. It was. Ironically, yeah. the fastest I ever sent a video file was ironically in Timbuktu, which, yes, is a place. <laughs> and it was it, does um, exist. it was like a 150 megabyte file. And uh, I had one of those little USB dongles that worked uh-huh. off the 3G network. Yeah. Woke up early, sent in like eight minutes. Where Where is wow. the cell phone tower in Timbuktu? Eh, just, you know. Top of the mountain. By the mosque. Testing one, two, three on my mic. Testing one, two, three on my mic. Testing one, two, three on my mic. I'm Todd Meisner. I'm Todd Wilbert. I'm Paul Coletti. And we're talking pictures with our with our Western Africa correspondent, former dispatch Argus photographer and freelance multimedia journalist, Nick Loomis. Nick, welcome to the show. One, two, three on my mic. Yeah. <laughs> the prodigal photographer. The prodigal photographer has returned. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, it's good. Yeah, we, 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 whoa. Pop. That was a zippity do there. We got to get the, the level of one, two, three on our mic really doesn't really help us anymore because yeah. it's, it's a shtick as much as it is an actual level check. Um, so, what brings you home? Uh, kind of my annual visit. Well, to do the podcast. Well, of course. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, well, this, that airline ticket, I'll have to put that on my expenses. Yes, please. <laughs> now, this is cool that uh, I've been listening to the podcast. You, we get it all the way over there. And, we uh, have it yeah. shipped over special just for you. Just for mm-hmm. No, it's, uh, it's cool. I, I always admired the dispatch for um, doing kind of experimental things like this. The innovativeness so, of it all. As opposed right. to some competitors who I won't mention. <laughs> the hated yeah. boo. Boo. Yeah. boo. Yes. Insert hissing and yes. booing sound, sound effect. Which our one reviewer, one of our yeah. four five-star reviews... On iTunes, folks. Remember, four, five-star reviews. No, I think it's six reviews, but like ratings. But then four people have gone to the trouble of filling out nice reviews about us. The only criticism was a a guy who said that we might have too many sound effects. And I... um, Insert booze here. Yeah. I know. Mm. Couldn't disagree. We we need some laser sounds. (laughs) (laughs) We digress fairly quickly. So, Nick, tell our audience... What it is you do in West Africa and and um, the kind of journalism or the kind of video work you're doing and and tell us what it is you did just so people may not remember you from your time here your time here so well Nick was a staff photographer yeah I was a staff photographer way back in I think I left in 2007 eight, or, seven eight? or eight yeah, yeah 2008 I went to For grad some school. of us that wasn't a long time ago but what, yeah well that was. That was a pretty long time pretty long ago. Time. Lifetimes ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, to go to grad school in New York, and then from there I uh, went to Dakar, Senegal, um, where I live now uh, still. Um, well, rather, again. I spent about three years there, moved to Haiti briefly, um, decided to go back to West Africa, went to Mali, uh, for about five months and because I'd been working there and then I just recently moved back to Dakar and where I work as a freelance like you said mostly video journalist for various uh, news organizations and uh, some um, international development organizations NGOs 
that kind of thing. What kind of stories are you telling these days? These days, uh, since I've been back, my uh, my schedule's kind of been booked up with um, videos for these non non uh, non governmental organizations, these development organizations, aid organizations. Um, who want to do promotional videos for their products or for the products uh, for their programs and so which is great you know they fly me all around West Africa I get to talk to and meet uh, a lot of people these you know lives that, that these organizations have touched um, and I use and they seek out journalists to do these kinds of things but that because that's the kind of skill set they're looking for they want these videos to feel sort of like uh, news, not, not news stories, more like small documentary videos, which is also what I do for my news clients. But um, uh, so yeah, and they and they pay much better than my news clients. <laughs> again, insert booze here. What? <laughs> what? Um, so, so, so go ahead. They've um, they've kind of lured me away from uh, from journalism for a while because a lot of especially abroad. Um, news organizations have gone away from the, you know, foreign correspondent model. A lot of them still have correspondents, staff members, but, you know, they mostly go freelance. So there's not a lot of opportunity to get staff jobs and to make a a livable wage. So when I, a lot of times I am doing these kinds of videos for these clients, but whenever I can, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, pitching to news organizations uh, to do stories that I'm interested in, which mostly concern um, environment, religion, um, not so much conflict or famine or the kind of stuff that you uh, um, you know mostly see in Africa. I try to do um, different stories, although you know I did a little Ebola um, coverage as well, so sometimes that has to happen. Tell us a little about the Ebola, just to, you know, because people, they, you say the word Ebola and people immediately yeah. will know what they thought yeah. of you the were, first time. You they, were in, <laughs> everybody in, everybody yeah. in the studio just inched away from that's, me. That's about, right. right. So you were in Africa when, obviously, when the whole Ebola outbreak was going on, but Ebola hysteria mm-hmm. took over the United mm-hmm. States. Mm-hmm. I don't know if the United States is kind just paralysis over like, oh, my God, Ebola is coming to our shores on the news every night was known in West Africa where you were actually dealing with the crisis. Well, people in West Africa had more things on their mind than and, the, yeah, what no uh, yeah. Americans were yeah. were going hysterical. So you could probably <laughs> shed a little light on the actual the actual the scenario there. Um, well, you know, most of most of Africa and even the most of West Africa was largely untouched, including um, where I was at that point. I was in Mali. I kind of um, I kind of came in. I came back to West Africa from Haiti sort of as things were really um, sort of jumping off and getting bad. Um, And I had a couple jobs that I had lined up already. So when a a major news client of mine called me and, well, contacted me and asked me if I could go to like Sierra Leone or Liberia to cover what was happening, I, you know, I really wanted to go because it's, a major news client, and it could have it could have been a really good thing for me. But I already had a uh, couple of jobs lined up already elsewhere. These um, with a non-governmental organization, so I kind of had to pass on it uh, temporarily. But by the time I got back and was ready to go, they had already sent somebody else who has since uh, been part of a Nobel Prize or not Nobel uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning team 
on mm. the covers. So that's kind oh, of uh, bummer. It's gonna and, sting. Yeah. And by the time I got back, that was that was pretty early on. By the time I got back from the jobs that I had to do, um, you know, news organizations kind of realized that maybe we shouldn't be sending freelancers to this place because it's 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 a liability. Um, I think there were only, there were maybe like one or two journalists who contracted the virus, and that was probably, you know, it, it's actually not it's not like an airborne virus. It's not like outbreak or anything like that, or it just spreads rapidly. I mean, if you look at the statistics, a very 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 small percentage of the populations, even in the most highly affected countries, Sierra Leone, Liberia, and Guinea, where it actually started, con- contracted the virus, and it was only. Um, you know, very close contact with people caring for it. And that was really what caused the proliferation of the virus was, you know, solidarity and, you know, closeness that exists Mm -hmm. throughout Africa, you know, caring for someone who's sick. Mm -hmm. And that's how you contract it, unfortunately. And so, I don't know, I never really felt much at risk, you know, being there because I wasn't. You know, you know how a virus behaves, and you can, you can avoid it. So um, that really didn't bother me. But at the same time, you know, news organizations, at you know, a little later on, were like, "Hey, wait a minute, we probably shouldn't. We should probably be sending people who are, you know, under our insurance and who, uh, you know, staff members, basically." So I didn't get a lot of. Uh, I didn't do a lot of work on Ebola as it was really. As it was really bad, more as was sort of coming down. The um, I think for me, and I know you guys probably have questions, but the the language issue, born and raised in Davenport, um, and you, uh, I, I mean, how do you deal with the your language, your language, the language skills that you need? This is a bad. I'm answering the question or asking the question very poorly. The um, how did you? What adjustments did you need to make, or what things did you have to learn to manage your need for language in country? Um, first and foremost, I learned French. Uh, Senegal is a French-speaking country, as are most of the countries in the West African subregion. The other countries like Nigeria, Sierra Leone, the Gambia, Ghana. Um, are English speaking, so um, you know, with French and English, you pretty much have the the region covered. That being said, there are thousands and thousands of uh, local languages that are spoken throughout the um, hundreds of thousands. I would venture to say, but you know, dialects, mm-hmm. uh, differing dialects, if not totally different languages, um, you know, and that. You just can't learn. So if you cover the, but you know, in Senegal, for example, most people go to school, and in school they learn French. So it is kind of the lingua franca. Um, Senegal is a little different because most people do speak the predominant local language, which is called Wolof. But that's sort of an exception because in a lot of other countries there are two or three predominant languages that are spoken more or less at the same level of one another, and to communicate with each other, they'll speak. Uh, French, if it's a former French colony, or English, if it's a former English colony. Uh, so, after I learned French to a, you know, acceptable level and started was able to start working, you know, I sort of uh, lost the will to, you know, I'm still American, so we're our <laughs> <laughs> language isn't our forte. 
Um, so I kind of stopped there. But um, with French and English, I can, you know, and if I have to, I'll, I, I work with a lot of translators in the countries that I work in. So, um, you know, and sometimes that's English to... Um, to a local language or French to a local language, but with the two, I can I'm able to work pretty efficiently. So, so when it comes to camera gear and things that uh, are you getting it shipped in or um, whatever I can't carry, I leave behind <laughs> basically, and that's kind of the I'm, I I'm a bit of a one man band, so that not only applies to you know travel from America to West Africa, but it also applies to um you know my travel within west africa if i can't carry it i, I don't take it and wow. i don't have a lot of extraneous gear mm-hmm. so um i carry everything in a single backpack um and if i can't get it you know i've, I've i kind of tailored my kit around this idea to to be light and sometimes i have to not often i have to get into a country sort of clandestinely um, if the subject matter I'm working on is not, uh, it's a little sensitive and maybe I don't want to let governments know that I'm there doing this. Um, I have to be able to pass off as just a, a tourist or, um, some other kind of visitor. So, you know, if you, if, uh, if a customs agent looks into my bag, it's, it's maybe a little packing a little heavy for a tourist, but maybe I'm just a, a camera enthusiast right so, what, what are you carrying you said you do a lot of video yeah well for video i mostly do um i have a the dslr uh 6d mm-hmm. um with a lot of you know peripheral things now uh, like uh, todd and i were talking earlier about like a external audio recorder that you can plug multiple microphones in and feed it into the camera um uh, I'm not going to say which one because I don't can, want this no, to be a no. I mean, a it's, promotional spot. No, for, it's all right. It's, you know, we get actually we did a whole thing about Think Tank. We're, we hoard ourselves out. Um, yeah. We love Think Tank. So um, no, you can. It's a Tascam. Well, shout out Tascam. Yes, yeah, shout hook, out Tascam. Hook, hook it up. <laughs> hook us up. All with new ones. Yeah. Uh, uh, but that that's in uh, you know my tripod. You know, good um, twenty four to one oh five. Canon lens, L series lens with image stabilization. Image stabilization is a big, is a big, uh, big thing plus, for me. Yeah, because yeah, I can't like lug around a stabilizer or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So, and I do a lot of, you know, movement, ambient sort of um, interviews where I'm walking around with the subject. So, um, yeah, apart from, and like wireless lav mic kit. I do also have a um, dedicated video camera that I'm using less and less because actually it doesn't. You know, even though it's a made for video, the DSLRs just look so much better. And my clients just say, like, you know, what is this? You know, mm-hmm. give, do the do the other camera all the time. <laughs> so that's what I do. Yeah, we started. We had, you know, we had gotten a couple of of dedicated video cameras when we first got into mm-hmm. video, and the, the the transition was easy to the DSLR simply because you can create a more cinematic effect. With the video, with the the use of the the lenses that go with the DSLR, and the and the use of aperture and 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 depth of field, and it's just for me, it's more visually interesting. I always look at TV and um, 
it's just everything's in focus, mm-hmm. you know, F8 and B there. I mean, yeah. it's just, it's just, you know, you know, you see an interview or something with someone and the, and the guy in the foreground is in, in focus. And then the people walking in the background who are distracting are even more distracting because yeah. you can read their name tags because right. there's so much depth of field. Yeah. I kind of like the, a lot of times DSLR stuff looks a little sloppy, a little avant-garde and I kind of dig it. You know, I don't like everything looking so super clean. So mm-hmm. I do like the, um, you know, you can't always get everything into focus. Sometimes you have to, you know, hurry up and rack focus and get somebody in and you know it's just it's not and especially with what i do it's not orchestrated it's just sort of you know it's very much in the moment so you know if it looks like that it's okay and with the with the video camera just yeah it kind of made everything to uh it's i don't know clean you know yeah clean i don't know Mm -hmm. i don't know if there's a better word for it but it always you can always tell when it's being used yeah um and it just i don't know it's just kind of boring yeah i i had a question earlier we we had lunch kind of talked a little bit with nick Mm, um the pre-interview the pre-interview the (laughs) pre-interview everybody will want it so don't uh, oh yeah um but no i was curious you earlier you said something about uh, your path uh, you thought was going to be like conflict photography um i don't know if it was necessarily going to be conflict photography it's just the place i was interested in was a place where a lot of conflict happens that uh, being the middle east if i did take that course um yeah i, I, don't, I don't know if i would have been able to avoid it but my um i guess my interest then as now is more like the the stories that you you don't see that sort of um dispel certain conceptions people have about a region, be mm-hmm. it the Middle East, be it Africa, you know, these, these places aren't all, um, they're not all strife Mild. and, yeah. and, and suffering. And, you know, there is, there are beautiful things that happen in these places, you know, that, you know, sort of bear witness to every day. And if, you know, if people want to, if people are interested in that, um, you know, one of the things uh, that they can do and follow is the, there's this everyday, um, account these everyday accounts on uh, Instagram on, on Instagram yep. everyday, everyday Africa everyday, everyday in Africa um, everyday there's even everyday USA there's everyday imagine Middle East I don't know if I follow it everyday Asia like all kinds of them um, that's just a hashtag I haven't heard of any of this no no these are accounts themselves are, okay yeah. and the you know the whole idea around them is to show the things that um, you know you don't see on the news about these mm-hmm. places. And that's what I sort of try to do. You know, sometimes I achieve it. Sometimes I have to fall in, like, you know, Ebola coverage, something that big is happening. If you're, and you're a journalist in the region, you can't totally ignore it. Right. Um, sometimes there's a, a coup d'etat. Actually, there was just a coup d'etat in uh, Burkina Faso that I was supposed to go cover. But um, I came to America instead. He chose doing the podcast yeah. over at Coup d'etat. Yeah. We could put that on our resume, boys. Right. Yeah. The, t- the ticket was already bought. Oh, well, uh, you know, hey, money talks. and How did you, not how, when did you know this is something you wanted to do? You were working here in 2007, 2008 mm-hmm. and decided to go to grad school. Did you go to grad school because you wanted to end up doing work like this? Or did it grow out of <laughs> out of your education and stuff? Post dispatch Argus. Um, no, I sort of had an idea that I might want to travel abroad. I didn't go to grad school necessarily with um, 
with the idea that I was definitely going to go and report abroad. Um, that was that was more incidental. Um, I really just I went to grad school and I left the dispatch Argus reluctantly because this was a great job. And Thank you, you guys, mm-hmm. you know, you especially Todd, you indulged me, and uh, Todd was my was the boss even way back then. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, you definitely indulged my um, tend- tendencies yeah. to do more multimedia kind of stuff, and you were all about it. You even let me do this, um, like <laughs> whack uh, like alternative sports blog where I wore a. Oh and, yeah, and, and, and t- until I think you yeah. kind of realize, like, I think Nick just wants to like blow off and go snowboarding on a work day. <laughs> well, it w- I think that the fact that when you you injured yourself and, and set your own arm, uh, yeah, that was that. I think that was the end of the alternative blog. Was the, set, the, the the broken arm in which you ordered on the internet your like the the the, the, the stuff to the, set your the, own the arm. casting tape. Well, you, you got to you know put this into context. Be fair, Todd. Uh, you know, I, it was the fourth time I had broken my wrist. It was like just a simple hairline <laughs> fracture. I had seen this done before. I was like, and I didn't have health insurance at the time. So you were, you well, were yeah, the, you didn't. You know, I wasn't at this point. I wasn't a staffer. I was still an intern. So oh I was yeah, not on, yeah, uh, you weren't on the insurance. Yeah, yeah. we didn't make him set his own arm. I mean, if he <laughs> as an intern, you got to set your own arm, or have your parents pay for. Sorry, it. kid. <laughs> Sorry, kid. You got to set your own arm. No. We got Nick Loomis's stuff in a drawer in the back. Go set your own arm. <laughs> Yeah, we um, still have the tape downstairs. No, it's in my house. I, I saw it right before I left. <laughs> um, but no, this no, this that all that uh, all to, to um, express that this was a great job. I and appreciate that. Anybody Thank you. would have been lucky to have it. Uh, I think I just sort of realized that I wasn't a great photographer, and I wanted like a like just still photographer. I mean, I was competent and. Uh, I made some good pictures while I was here. It's just I didn't, uh, I I didn't think that, and I definitely wanted to explore, um, you know, multimedia. And although you let me do it, um, I wasn't. I was kind of, and you you did it yourself, and we, you know, we went back and forth on oh, some yeah. things. I didn't. I I wasn't learning. Uh, I wasn't like, I was I was on the cutting edge already in the. Uh, in 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 the dispatch Argus newsroom, right? So, and I wanted to be. Yeah. I wanted to. I wanted to go somewhere where I was, you know, sort of a little fish. So I went to New York and I went to grad school, and uh, where I met um, my ex girlfriend, who then got a job or an internship in Senegal. So we decided to pack up and move to Senegal. That's how it all sort of happened, Todd. To did he you, did a great yeah. job of bringing it Bring back it to your around. question. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah we went in we a went very on. convoluted way. Yeah. Well, we talked about his broken arm. Yeah. We got a thing. He, he mentioned <laughs> that he's single. Good, yeah. good, yeah. good on you. Yeah. yeah, we'll put a picture. We'll put a picture. Well, no, you're dating someone, aren't you? Yeah. Okay. So. Sorry this, about that, the, Nick. The picture yeah. of this Blow podcast is seen by hundreds. <laughs> literally. Um, <laughs> literally T- hundreds. Tens of people. <laughs> tens of people. And our wives are all spoken for us, but you're a handsome devil. Um, uh, what was I going to ask? Now I distracted I I, myself. I had a question about Good. where you I'll live I'll think of my now. question after I'm done. Kind of tell people a little bit about because you live in like the biggest city, right? The, yeah. It's yeah. the capital of Senegal. The, yeah. So it's, you know, I don't know how many people... 
Uh, in the city itself? Uh, that's a good question. I think there may be like, it depends on if we're talking about the city itself or the peri-urban areas. Um, Senegal in total is about 13 million people. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dakar, there's a lot of, you know, urban migration to the city center. Um, so I'm thinking with para-urban areas, meaning suburbs, but not meaning like Chicago suburbs or Detroit suburbs. In the rest of the right. world, suburbs are where, or what uh, Americans would think is like inner city. It's like more the poorer mm-hmm. areas. Uh, so including those areas, maybe around 3 million, okay. but don't quote me on that. Okay. And it's, mm-hmm. it's a coastal city, right? Coastal, yeah. Actually, um, it's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's not a bad life. You know? yeah. I mean, people are like... People assume, you know, they hear Africa, they sort of assume that it's, you know, run down dirt roads. You're waking up having a giraffe lick your face every morning. Yeah, (laughs) no, not the case. I have a very modern apartment with internet and TV, and it's not very expensive. It's, uh, you know, today's a beautiful day in the Quad Cities. It's like 70-some degrees. It's like that most of the time. So right now it's pretty warm. And it's yeah, not a total coincidence that I'm here right now is because it's the hottest time of year in Dakar, and it's kind of miserable. But that only that only lasts a couple months. So uh, I had my annual visit home, sort of coincide with that. Right. So, um, nice. but no, it's a it's it's a great place to be based. It's a very stable country. In 60 years of independence, it's never had a coup d'état. It's had, it's you know three for three peaceful transitions of power between presidents. Um, last one was kind of a close call. Uh, there was some uh, some tension. Shenanigans, Shenanigans, I believe, uh... yeah. <laughs> I, caught, I breathed in quite a bit of tear gas in, in those days. But, uh, no, uh, you know, but then things calmed right back down. It's, uh, it's, yeah, it's a great place to be based. I mean, but that being said, and I've worked a bit in Senegal, but mm. there's not a lot of news coming out of Senegal. Mm-hmm. Because it is so stable, it's got its you know, stuff together, and it's surrounded by countries that have quite a few more problems than it does. So I spend, you know, despite the fact that I said earlier that I want to show a different face of Africa, you know, sometimes even showing a different face of Africa does include going to a place where there has been, you know, vast amounts of improvement, as mm-hmm. opposed to somewhere like Senegal, where it's you know it's pretty much been. Um, obviously, Senegal has its problems, as is everywhere. But uh, you know, it's been one of the exemplary countries in the region, for, you know, since since it gained independence. So, um, yeah, I mostly work outside of Senegal and just use Senegal as a base. And there are a lot of other, you know, it's sort of a hub for, um, you know, these development workers. Yeah, there are there's a pretty good core of. Uh, uh, journalists based in Dakar, and so in addition to like, my Senegalese friends, I have a lot. I have American friends, French friends, like just expats. So mm-hmm. it's it's a cool place. The the what was your biggest adjustment to living overseas? <clears throat> no good beer. Really? Oh, yeah. I, I every time I come home, I have to bring in like ten tall cans of uh, Great River. <laughs> Pale ale. Shout out Great River. Yeah. <laughs> it, for me, it'd be the Oktoberfest. And this is the perfect time of year. Yeah. Had one yesterday. Um, no, but um, that 
I mean, that's no small thing for me. But, uh, oh, I know. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that, that's, I know. That's, that's not a total joke, but uh, no, the, the biggest adjustment was, you know, going not just having to, you know, completely overhaul my life and my experience and live in a place where I didn't speak a language. I looked very different from everybody else. And, but, you know, like anything else, I mean, humans are very adaptable mm-hmm. and, you know, you can get used to it. And after an adjustment period you know I can't like I said after I moved to Haiti or after I came back from Haiti um, it was the first time as my girlfriend and I broke up it was the first time that uh, like in a long time where I could actually like decide okay I could live anywhere I want and I could do anything I want to I decided to go back to West Africa so comfort zone yeah yeah. I, well, yeah, but it was also, you know, I had I had a foothold there. Right. Which I kind of did have to get back a little bit. But, um, yeah. Because you're established. Client. I know yeah. I'm marketable there. I know the region. And, yeah, there's, a, there's some projects that when I left, I was a little upset about leaving because I wanted to realize them. So. Now, you were, you were talking a little bit about having to uh, go and cover some of the conflict areas. H- have you turned down any assignments <laughs> because of concerns? or? Um, well, yeah. When, uh, when I was with my girlfriend there, we had a no-conflict agreement. That is, I would, not, um, I would not cover any active conflict. However, there was you know, shades of gray. I, um, I did go to northern Mali right after the uh, liberation um, thereof after like in 2012 it was northern Mali was taken over by um, religious extremists uh, from mostly foreign coming in from Algeria Libya after the fall of Gaddafi they had you know huge supplies of arms they were able to take over north the entire like an area about the size of Texas in northern Mali Mm. um uh, for about eight months, and the populations that lived there were subjected to extreme Sharia law. And obviously, no journalists were going in at this point because they would have been. It was basically the Islamic State before the Islamic State. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, once um, you know, a French-led military coalition, including Malian uh, military, went in and basically liberated the region to the extreme happiness of the people who actually are, live in northern Mali and from northern Mali t- places like Timbuktu, Gao um, Kidal well Kidal not so much but um, um, then I went in and did some stories there and it was still a little you know there was chance of retaliatory attacks uh, you know thankfully nothing ever, nothing happened mm-hmm. uh, while I was there Um but uh, I'm maybe going back soon to northern Mali for an assignment. Um, and things are even more untenable right now. But um, um, hopefully my mom isn't, won't listen to this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, because it, Senegal's, uh, is it Sunni? Senegal is Sunni. Uh, but it's a secular government, right? It's a secular government, yeah. Um, Sunni Muslim, but it's... It's Sunni, but it's also Sufi. Sufi okay. is sort of a mystical, right. um, very you know, peaceful. You know, I, all 
all Islam, I would venture to say, is, is peaceful. Mm-hmm. However, it is appropriated by oh, yeah. people who are not so peaceful yeah. and use the religion um, to, you know, for mostly geopolitical gains and for power plays, uh, in my opinion. But um, this is, uh, you know, a form of Islam that is like even more so. Even I mean, it, it's it's very unlikely that you know this sort of the Episcopalians, you'd say, maybe, <laughs> maybe yeah, <laughs> uh, or you know, or um, don't get me started on Episcopalians, <laughs> please. Yeah. Or what's uh, what's Pope Francis? Um, Catholic, Jesuit, Jesuit. Um, Kind of like, yeah, the Jesuit, you know, Catholics have perpetrated their uh, uh, oh, yeah. no, uh, their fair share of atrocities throughout the years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're, they're the Jesuits to the Catholics, basically. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I was curious, you were talking about the uh, the no-conflict agreement with the, the girlfriend. What... Uh, there was just, just no... Con- like, was there a level of conflict that was okay, or...? <laughs> Um, not active conflict. So that not active. Yeah. So, I mean, if there was a possibility that something would happen while I was there, I guess that was still okay. I wouldn't be in, uh, direct danger. Yeah. I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be in, uh, in breach of, of no conflict contract <laughs> if I had gone while there was no con- conflict, but you know, conflict happened while I was there. I would not be in breach of contract. My wife makes, but, me. but it's, but it's irrelevant now. So yeah. I could do what I want. My wife makes me empty the dishwasher, so. <laughs> That's rough. Or there's conflict. <laughs> or there's conflict. <laughs> That's rough. It is rough. But now you're, the, your current uh, girlfriend's a little more okay with it, or uh, she just knows you're going to make good decisions? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's, let's just stay out of my personal life. <laughs> let's, 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 let's take a, take a, like a break from my personal life. <laughs> Okay, let's talk about Paul's baby now. Yeah, my personal life. Yes. <laughs> e, the, you, you, you definitely, yeah. you can, definitely can't do conflict anymore. No, no. Those days now that you have somebody uh, who depends on you. Paul yeah. sat down at his microphone after we'd right. had yeah. Mexican food for lunch and said, "Oh, I got Mexican food on my pants." Oh no, that's from the baby. Yeah. <laughs> Start scratching on his pants. I don't know what it was, but it came right off. Thank God. Yeah. And then I want to go wash yeah. my hands. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, Nick, where do you want to where where do you want to go with this? Where that's such a dad question. Uh, <laughs> the, one, the one the one I usually try to avoid. Um, no, I mean, what's this, the end game, Nick? When are you moving home? <laughs> when are you gonna move home? When somebody offers me, uh, makes me an offer I can't refuse. Basically, is what. Would, don't look at what, me. What, I don't got yeah. any jobs. <laughs> what would bring me home? Um, no, I mean, it's, not what this, would bring you home. Just where you, where are you looking to go? Well, I'm, no, I'm not looking really to go anywhere. This is all kind of new. I mean, uh, this, uh, my... You're in a new chapter. Bra- yeah, kind of. Because uh, mm-hmm. the, the old the old MO was basically to follow my my ex where she went because um, she works in for, an, for a development organization. And it's good. To, I was actually really excited about reporting in Haiti um, until things kind of dissolved. Well, not in Haiti, just personally but um you know i was excited about you know a new development um and you know just changing things up every once in a while but now you know i don't yeah it's that is to say it's still kind of it's still kind of new i'm not really sure i've started um 
I have no plans to leave Senegal in the immediate future because uh, with some colleagues, both international um, freelance journalists, producers uh, across media and Senegalese, our Senegalese colleagues uh, are starting this um, nonprofit multimedia cooperative. Mm. So we're trying to get that off the ground. It has sort of an educational uh, objective in um, you know, basically developing, developing the institution of journalism in starting in Senegal, and we'll see where it goes from there. So, yeah. Very cool. So kind of want to get that, you know, started at least. I mean, because the idea is for it to become sort of uh, self-sustaining and self-perpetuating. Uh, because, um, you know, people like me, like various friends, other uh, international freelancers who are based there, Make it up and leave at any time. And mm-hmm. what's going to be left is the the core of Senegalese journalists, um, including videographers, photographers, uh, graphic designers, mostly visual uh, animators. We I'm start uh, started to work with uh, some colleagues who do animation on cool. um, and looking to incorporate those kinds of things to basically with the end of improving storytelling, um, mm-hmm. both for my work, the work of my colleagues, my international colleagues, and in in Senegal. Is there a story that you've wanted to tell and haven't either had the opportunity or haven't, it, it would be an expensive story to tell, that you need the backing of an organization, be it news or be a, um, you know, an organiz- uh, health organization or a, uh, any other organization, somebody's dollars. Is there is there that story that you want told that you haven't been able to do yet yeah um i kind of have these grandiose ideas i have a hard time um shrinking down and focusing uh stories to a single uh you know sort of viable element um but you know that being said why should you have to and um i've i haven't applied for any grants recently but i mostly um there's like some environmental stories i definitely want to tell because west africa is kind of the last frontier when it comes to economic development um even elsewhere in africa you know east africa southern africa really had these sort of um their emergence onto the global economic stage that west africa apart from a couple exceptions including nigeria and cote d'ivoire there the rest of west africa is just now kind of emerging and um with that comes, you know, in, in these countries lack institutions, and I would include Nigeria and, and uh, Cote d'Ivoire, Ivory Coast, in the in that um, they lack institutions to sort of oversee this development in a responsible way. So what happens is there's a lot of environmental degradation that happens with this rapid economic expansion, and that's a story that I really want to really want to tackle, and that's the kind of thing that you have to go to multiple countries buy a lot of plane tickets stay in hotels and you really need and that's not the kind of thing that as a freelancer that my clients are ready to foot the bill for so that would need um like grant money basically uh which is a long laborious process with little chance of success you apply for for every 10 grants you apply for maybe you get one maybe Others have like a higher ratio, but um, you know, 
Can we fire up a, a Kickstarter, Kickstarter page? GoFundMe. Kickstarter. Uh, I think that seems like a lot of pressure to be beholden to a, like hundreds of people who give you money, and uh, as opposed, I only want to let down one big uh, okay. one one yeah. one <laughs> one, <laughs> one entity rather than you don't want to disappoint more people than you have. <laughs> if this proves to be unviable, no, nah, no, but it would be a good um, a good thing. But I, you know, I'm going to stick to the uh, the grants. It's just I haven't had much time lately. Um, mm. I've been. Yes, you know, these uh, development organizations basically taking me away from journalism. I blame them. But, um, <laughs> what do you edit in? Uh, Final Cut Pro X. Okay. Yeah. That's what we do? Yeah. It's, mm-hmm. A lot of people, like, rejected it because it, it looked totally different. It was a total overhaul. Yeah. And everybody's like, eh. All the, the professional video producers just bending migrated toward adobe which i don't think it was a a wise idea because i think the premiere is going to start looking like final cut well it makes much more sense yeah i think that the for me and i know this is probably true for paul and i know it's true for todd we didn't we weren't using final cut for long enough Right. To have these in, ingrained needs or wants and, and habits that were so deeply rooted, like a, mm-hmm. a, a lot of these guys that freaked out um, had. And so when they came out with it, for me, it just seemed more intuitive. And was I welcomed the change. And I can kind of see how they went um, on their first, their like quick look at it. They're like, oh, it's just, you know, iMovie on steroids. And I, I, I get it, and they did make they've made marketed markable improvement over the last few years. But um, I didn't have any ingrained habits that I needed to had to adjust to. Took getting used to like anything would, but yeah. it wasn't I, a huge leap. Yeah, I, I definitely did because I was working on the previous version for a long time, and uh, when I got it, when I got X, I had to get X because the camera that I had. Um, the codex wouldn't work. The codex wouldn't work with X, so I actually had to get Final Cut Pro X to import the the um, the files, mm-hmm. and then I would take. That's basically all I'd use it for, because then I would take those imported files, converted files, and use them in uh, Final Cut X. Just because I had I was on deadline, and I needed to. I didn't have time to learn the software, but once my old computer died, and I was like, okay, I got to use. I don't have uh, the previous incarnation anymore. I got to use it. Yeah, just if there was a little bit of a learning curve, but then, uh, yeah, I did avoid it for a little while though. Oh, really? Interesting. So, do you use that to edit this as well, the audio, or do you use it? No, audio? we use. Um, I use. Uh, we don't. Edit I, this. I, no, we don't edit. I mean, <laughs> well, you, I mean, you add you, you add sound effects. Well, I use GarageBand for that because I'm too cheap for Logic. Uh-huh. Yeah, we actually own lasers too. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What What are you gonna? What sound There's effects no are you sound gonna put over? This. I mean, it's. I, Macaws know. squawking, squawking, oh, yeah. like orangutan, oh, like yeah. super stereotypical, sickly, sickly sound yeah. when yeah. I'm talking about coughing, Ebola, yeah. or yeah. oh yeah. god, <laughs> yeah, that, what is what does blood sound like? <laughs> <laughs> Bubbling noises, blah, 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 blah. no, about the, malaria. That's right. The um, no, we use GarageBand to, for the big edit. Um, all the edit, all the audio though is tweaked. Um, before it goes into that in Amadeus Plus or Amadeus Pro, Amadeus Pro, because I for that's the first f- audio editor I ever learned, and every audio editor 
since then I can't adjust my head to. So I guess I'm like those guys who used Final Cut 7 for so long and then they, you know, mm-hmm. then they can't change. But um, people are like, oh, you got to try this audio editing program and i'm like oh yeah no it's not the things aren't where they're supposed to be so um so that i'll tweak all the audio and make sure all the levels are right and everybody's you know along that you know sounds okay then i import that file in a garage band and if i i put the music the, the opening mu- opening closing music in that because i could it's a layered track um editor so and then if i have to put a sound effect of you know, crying babies in the background or something. Then, <laughs> yeah. then I can do supply that. that. I can supply yeah. that. Why did you take more? That? Please, um, please, uh, yeah. you know, be uh, respectful. <laughs> I don't think I can't think of a sound effect to... one for this show. <laughs> <laughs> we'll make that make our yeah. our one guy happy. I, I really, he was, you know, and I I can't believe that it's really been interesting doing this um, because people have found us um, in weird ways. Um, but the think tank actually, which was came from the heart. I mean, I joked about you know selling out, but that we the think tank can, came from a heart because I am an addict. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm a full blown think tank addict. I've got more think tank stuff that I I've got a, a big gigantic box of stuff I don't even use. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that I've you know decided to change my kit and buy a whole new setup. But can I come pick that box over? <laughs> oh, man. Oh. It's too big for you. Everything's size X for me. You like <laughs> Nick is uh, if if Coletti is a medium, then that and I, if let's say Todd and I are extra larges, uh, Paul's a medium. Yeah. Nick, you're a small. Yeah, I'm a whittle guy. <laughs> Uh, we used to, you know, my Nick bird like bones. Yeah, I he does. Yeah. Well, yeah. my my favorite Nickism, uh, as we descend into stories about Nick, uh, <laughs> the favorite story about Nick is people would always marvel at how much he ate. Yeah, yeah. You know, because Nick, you, where do you put we, it? it would where where Nick, where do you put all this food? And Nick would say, uh, well, I obviously don't say it anymore. Cause <laughs> I probably said it all the time. Um. What would he say? Oh, um, the tapeworm that lives in my wooden leg. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when, when now it's more like, uh, you know, millions and millions of parasites. I'm on the, I'm on the African diet, Yum. African parasite diet. That, that's your new thing. Yeah. Now, do you still? I know you. I know you bike. Do you? Uh, do you do any sporting type things over there? Are you too busy? Uh, yeah. No. I when I'm in Dakar. Um, like, I, I said, I kind of spend a lot of time away. Like the entire mm-hmm. month of August, I was away on different trips. Um, but when I am in Dakar, I will, there is, I mean, just go to talk, dispelling people's misconceptions about uh, Africa. And there's, you know, I mean, Dakar is, yeah, it's a hub, but there are multiple cities like this where there's a lot of, there's a big expat community. There's actually a group of mostly Americans who get together and play ultimate frisbee on a uh, <laughs> on this big American. It, it's a it's a piece of land mm-hmm. that that the United States government owns in Dakar that they were where they where they were going to build the new embassy, but they realized that it was uh, geologically unsound, so they turned it into like a sporting, uh, basically mm-hmm. like this playground for American expats who live there. Nice. So they play. Um, uh, ultimate frisbee there. There's floor hockey at the American school. Floor hockey? I play floor hockey in Dakar. Oh, I love floor <laughs> hockey. 
Um, and I bite. You guys didn't play floor hockey, no. did you? No. No. Did you play floor hockey in, in, in school here? I played ice hockey. Well, well not, not school. But I mean, like yeah, like in, in, gym, in gym class. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Did you? I was schooled because I was playing ice hockey. Yeah. Up, so yeah, because it. Yeah, we played <laughs> ice hockey and floor hockey. Did you not not a Moline thing? Davenport, right across. He grew up right across the river. No, he didn't get all. It we didn't grew get up all, right across the river, two decades apart. Yeah. So <laughs> that might have been it. Yeah, but it's like there was more money in the schools for sticks to hit each other with. <laughs> I mean, it was you know. I mean, and then the static electricity that when, when I had. Growing up in the Chicago suburbs, I had a floor hockey stick and a pla- plastic puck in my parents' house. So when the Blackhawks games were on televised, they were on the road because the t- home games weren't televised. You, I would be you know, a little kid, you know, you're like seven, going around the house. The static electricity that you build up with a plastic <laughs> stick and a plastic puck on carpet, that as soon as you touch something, you know, you're, you're shot across the room. I, I, feel, I feel sorry for your dogs growing up. <laughs> Shooting pucks at them. And we had cats. They were harder to hit. Ah, well, you could touch them and then shoot Oh, them. yeah, that's exactly right. With your... Uh, After a while, they Super static your, electricity. But... Um, science. Yeah. But no, I... Sports is biking in Dakar pretty uh... inadvisable. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I biked in New York for a couple of years before moving to Dakar. I don't know if that's any more or less dangerous. I'd, I'd usually drive my moped around Dakar, but I'd been riding my bike outside of Dakar on weekends recently to like little, you know, fifty mile trips. Actually, when I get back, a friend of mine and I are going to take a bike trip to. Um, Kedegu, which is the extreme southeast of Senegal. And uh, it's about the distance. I did the, uh, I did the math. It's about the distance of Ragbri. Wow. Mm-hmm. 500 and some nice. miles? Yeah. Wow. So we, well, close, probably, this is maybe a little longer, probably closer to six. Jeez. But I'm, I was supposed to do Ragbri this year, but uh, I did, couldn't get back. So I think you'll be ready. I'm going to oh. recreate, uh, recreate Ragbri in Senegal. Well, you, uh, you need to take little cardboard cutouts of farms yeah, yeah. and then like set them <laughs> right. to like take selfies of yourself with like uh-huh. this is what if, if I were on Rag Bride this would be in the background click farm. I'm gonna wear my Rag Bride jersey for there, sure. you there you go there you go the um it, for those the, I, the picture that I always think of that Nick took and Nick it made me think of this when Nick said he wasn't he didn't he was competent photographer um but the I was just over at the VFW, or no, the Legion Hall in Moline, which is closed. And I was standing in the their their kind of solemn area where the um, the memorials are in that kind of glass room, and uh. I said that of all the pictures that have ever come out of this building in the twenty six years that I've been at the paper, the best picture to ever come out of this place was Nick's picture of the uh, D-Day survivors. Uh, on a, It was a cold day. They made him go inside, and they set those guys right in front of the window. And Nick took – it's a beautiful picture of these guys, and it's a hard picture to take, of uh, these guys inside with the flag that they're saluting on the outside reflected on the window in front of them. Oh, yeah. And it is as – good a picture that as anybody has ever taken it's worked here and that as soon as i mentioned that picture to this veteran he knew exactly what i was talking about and he got choked up it's that 
kind of picture. And those guys, it means even more because those guys are drop. I mean, I almost said dropping like flies. That's not very respectful. <laughs> um, those guys are are passing away at an exponential rate. I think there's only maybe one or two D-Day survivors left. Um, not D-Day. Pearl um, Harbor. Pearl Harbor. I'm sorry. I'm getting yeah, my, I, my, I think. Yeah, the Pearl Harbor guys. Be high on that number. Yeah, I think that on more than two, I, it might be none because we don't I have know. that ceremony. We don't cover that ceremony anymore. They no. don't. It used to be, you know, no. there was two or three guys or four or five guys, and then, you know, I can't believe I said D-Day. Boy, I totally blew the moment, didn't I? Maybe I can re-record no, myself saying <laughs> Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor. Um, but no, that that picture is. It, a lot of people remember that picture, and mm-hmm. I figure if you can be remembered for one picture in your career by a lot of people, then you've been successful. Thank yeah. you, yeah, no, I, I like that. Yeah, it was a, a reflection picture, which is kind of my uh, device. <laughs> a lot of the more memorable pictures I've taken involved reflections. So. Yeah, well, it was, a, it was a great picture, and yeah, from the, right. the, um, the other guys didn't have it, if I remember correctly. Take that. Bam. <laughs> well, Nick, we, uh, we could spend all day talking to you. We need more beer. We need more beer. That sounds like there's yeah. beer up here. There's not beer up here. Um, Jerry. <laughs> promise, that. promise. Yeah, I wish. But thank you very much for coming in. I know the guys appreciate it. And yeah. I appreciate it a great deal. My pleasure. And thank you for uh, giving me a shot all those years ago. I know. Uh... It was an easy decision. <laughs> easy decision. You are, you are one of our, we've, we think of you fondly every day. Mm-hmm. As I do you. Great. I appreciate that. <laughs> Somebody's got to think of me fondly. You guys yeah, don't. No, huh? Thanks for coming in, Nick. Um, Thank you. I said um again. I'm going to say um again. I'm going to say um again. Um. um I'm Todd Meisner. You are? <laughs> no. My wife's going to be surprised. I'm trying to throw you a cue. <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> I'm Todd Meisner. I'm Todd Wolf. I'm Paul Galetti. And I'm Nick Loomis. And we miss him every day, and we're glad he could come in and talk to us. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. The Talking Pictures Podcast is a production of The Dispatch, The Rock Island Argus, and QCOnline.com. To see some of the photos and videos discussed in our podcast, be sure to go to talkingpicturespodcast.blogspot.com. Talking Pictures is produced by Todd Meisner, Paul Coletti, and Todd Walvert. Thanks to Laura Anderson Shaw, Meg McLaughlin, Laura Frames, and Randy Fisk. The music was provided by Kevin McLeod at www.incomputech.com. Make sure you subscribe to Talking Pictures on iTunes or SoundCloud.